Text today is Judges 21. It's on page 276 of the Bibles in your seats. So last week we read about Israel's first civil war that began when the tribe of Benjamin defended some Sodomites in their town of Gibeah. They prevented them from receiving justice for a violent rape and murder of a Levite's concubine. And as a result of this, the rest of the tribes came together, they fought against them, and they nearly wiped out Benjamin entirely. By the end of chapter 20, there's nothing left of the tribe of Benjamin except for 600 men left of the army. They're up hiding in the mountains at the Rock of Ramon. Their cities have been burned, completely destroyed. Their people have been slaughtered. And now this week, we see how this tribe was preserved by the rest of Israel. So we're going to read all of chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. They said, Why, O Lord, God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? It came about the next day that the people arose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then the sons of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, One tribe is cut out from Israel today. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? Behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. And the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. This is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had kept alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead. Yet there were not enough for them. And the people were sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. When the elders, uh, then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? They said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin so that a tribe will not be blotted out from Israel. But we cannot give them Wives of our daughters, for the sons of Israel had sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Lebanon. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, Then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. It shall come about when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us that we shall say to them, 
Give them to us voluntarily, because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. The sons of Benjamin did so, and took wives according to their number from those who danced, whom they carried away, and they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the cities and lived in them. The sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Lord God, as we close out the book of Judges, guide us in our thinking by your spirit. Do not let us turn away from the ravages of evil because it is distasteful to us, but let us learn the hard lessons of a people that do not look to you as their ruler and as their sovereign. Make us receptive to the truth found in these scriptures. Bless our gathering with your presence. May it be glorifying to you, faithful to the text and helpful for your people. Send your spirit to work in us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this will be our 23rd and final sermon on the book of Judges. We are mercifully completing this book today. I do, I do enjoy the, the genre of historical narrative in the Bible. I do. And seeing how the issues in Israel's past still teach us lessons today, seeing as how we can apply them. But I will say Judges is one of the more difficult books of historical narrative, and so I'm not exactly disappointed to see it in the rearview mirror. Although we will not be leaving this time period of the Judges quite yet, because we're going to go ahead and we're going to do the next book after Judges, which is Ruth. Even though Ruth is only four chapters, I think it's going to serve as a bit of a palate cleanser, if you will, after these 21 chapters of depravity and perversion and idolatry and death. But that won't be until next week. And we have one final chapter detailing Israel's depravity when there was no king in the land and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And this is that whole bundle of idiocy that I referenced last week. Chapter 21 begins by letting us know of a rash oath that all the tribes had sworn when they initially gathered at Mizpah before the Civil War. When they're going to gather and they're going to go fight Benjamin, they took an oath there. Each one of them swore to never give one of their daughters to a Benjaminite in marriage, which now presents a problem. They're all at Bethel. They're all there mourning over the fact that Benjamin is essentially cut off. They're going to be missing from Israel. Israel is going to be incomplete. They cry out to God in kind of a mildly accusatory tone, saying in verse 3, they say, Why, O Lord God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one of the tribes should be missing today in Israel? Sounds a little mildly accusatory there. They don't say it directly, but it sounds like, how could you have let this happen, Lord? (laughs) There's no sense of responsibility taken. There's no sense of justice at the consequences of their actions, at Benjamin's actions, of Israel's actions, their complicity. There's no sense of regret over what they've done. And now they have this new problem that they've created for themselves. How is Benjamin going to be restored to be part of Israel? That, they, they can't fathom the idea of Benjamin being cut off, Israel being incomplete. They've got to find a way for Benjamin to be restored, to continue. 
There's only 600 of them left. There's 600 men, 600 Benjaminites left, and Israel has killed all their women. And they will not give their own daughters to be their wives because of this oath that they have taken. It's an odd sorrow that they express here. We can't really get into their inner psyche, right? But there, there seems to be at least some degree of pity on Benjamin. But probably to a larger extent, there seems to be sorrow at the existence of division in Israel. The fact that there's this breakup of the Israelite union, the 12 tribes, and then there's Benjamin is missing. It sort of harkens back to when the brothers went and visited Egypt and they had to leave Benjamin behind and they were terrified at that idea and they, they just can't fathom it. Israel will now be permanently incomplete unless something is done to rectify Benjamin as one of the 12 tribes. So they put their heads together to come up with a solution. They don't seek counsel from the Lord. We get no indication of that. Instead, what do they do? They do what is right in their own eyes. And I got to tell you, their plan is not brilliant. It actually reminds me a bit of one of my favorite Christmas records. It's called Salty's Christmas Calamity. Does anybody, do you guys know who Salty is? Okay, good. Salty, the singing song. I, I was hoping so. Otherwise, I would have to explain this concept of an anthropomorphized songbook, which is a little silly. Well, every year since I was a little kid, I've listened to this record, Salty's Christmas Calamity. I probably listened to it five times every Christmas, at least. And it has, it's probably absolutely solidified the word calamity in my everyday vocabulary. Uh, it's really, it's the only reason I use that word. And I use it a lot. Um, and now my kids have to hear that album repeatedly every Christmas season, too. They are required to love it. <laughs> and briefly, the premise is that Salty and the kids are asked to sing at a neighborhood church for Christmas. But when they go to try to practice the Christmas songs, they find that all of Salty's Christmas song pages are dusty. They haven't used them since the last year, so now they're dusty. So they wash his pages to get the dust off. And when they wash them, they shrink. So now, with these shrunken pages, they all sing the songs way too fast, way too high. They sound like fast-tempo chipmunks. It's a calamity. It's a calamity. And then there's a sequence where they put their heads together, they're going to fix it. And obviously, it's accompanied by a fantastic song about it, probably the best song on the album. They forget to ask God what to do. And instead, they start spitballing these ideas on how to fix Salty's pages. How do we fix this problem? They say, well, maybe we'll stretch the pages, or maybe we'll have Salty drink some tonic. That'll fix it. Or my personal favorite, we'll have Salty eat a record, which, in other words, their plans are not brilliant. They are not brilliant plans. And Israel here is not much better in their plans for this calamity that they've created. They've got themselves a dumb idea. In fact, rather than offering a silly solution, what they come up with is positively diabolical. And I don't mean that in the cartoonish, fiendish sense. I mean that in the most heinous evil type sense. They raise the question of who from Israel didn't gather with us before we went to war with Benjamin? Who wasn't there? Because they had taken another separate oath that we are informed about that whoever didn't come up to the assembly shall be put to death. We're going to kill whoever doesn't gather with us to fight Benjamin. And they realize that one city, Jabesh Gilead, 
sent no man to the assembly. There's no representative. There's no army. There's no soldiers. Nothing. They just apparently ignored it. Jebush Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan. They're kind of separated from Israel a little bit because they're not in Canaan per se. So they must have felt some degree of detachment from the separation in Israel, possibly. Maybe they didn't feel threatened by what was going on. We're not exactly sure. Maybe they just like, oh, that's their business in Canaan. We're on the other side of the Jordan. I don't know. But the tribes of Israel see their absence as an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. Or in this case, kill one city with 12,000 men. They decide that they will send an army of 12,000 men to butcher every single man, woman, and child in the entire city, except for the virgin women. They're going to save the virgin women. They will then kidnap those virgin women, and they will bring them back, and they'll offer them to Benjamin as wives so that that tribe could propagate and thus continue as part of Israel. That's their idea. Basically, they've gotten themselves into a hole, and their solution is going to be to dig their way out. There's this horrible thing that's happened. Let's do something far more horrible. Maybe that'll fix it. This way, they can punish Jabesh Gilead, like they wanted to do, according to their oath, as well as provide these wives for the remaining Benjamite men. The fact that their plan is psychotic does not seem to be a concern to them at all. It doesn't seem likely that they even would have raised the question of Jabesh Gilead's absence were they not looking for an excuse to get a bunch of women. They probably would have passed on that. They wouldn't even have looked around and said, who wasn't here? But because they're looking to find these women to get their hands on these virgin women, then they raise the question. Then they're like, well, let's just wipe out that city and take their women. And after the idea is proposed... No one stands up and criticizes it. No one says, hey, that's a terrible idea. This is one of our own cities. Let's not go murder an entire city for their minor infraction of not showing up at this. They don't know about that oath. Was there some proclamation beforehand of if you don't come here, you're going to die? They took that oath themselves at Mizpah. So with no resistance to their evil plan, with it seemingly being right in their own eyes, they follow through with this plan. They butcher the men, the women, and the children from one of their own cities. This honestly is probably worse than the events of chapter 19. I mean, if you look at it in an objective sense, not necessarily the descriptions, but if you just think about what happened, this is probably worse. This might be the ugliest chapter in the Bible. But there's no nation to rise up against them for doing what they did. Because it was the whole of the nation itself committing the evil. There's no other tribe left to say, hey, you need to be punished for that evil. You see why I said last week that Israel was probably being prejudged by losing those massive numbers, those 40,000 men in those first two battles with Benjamin? I said, these people are of horrible character. They deserve to be prejudged. This is probably why. Look at what they're capable of themselves. They do not have the moral high ground here. The irony, of course, is that this war began with Israel's moral indignation of the events in chapter 19. They were so outraged at the treatment of that concubine by the men of Gibeah. And now, here they are, 
doing so much worse, so much worse than the men of Gibeah. They are committing the same basic sin on a scale hundreds of times worse. Murder hundreds, if not thousands of times worse. They murder thousands and they abuse these poor young women from Jabesh Gilead by forcing them into marriages, kidnapping them, forcing them into marriages with men that they wouldn't even give their own daughters to. These are the same men that do this. These are the same men crying out to God just a few days ago, asking him, why, why have we been allowed to be defeated in battle? We just lost 40,000 men. We're trying to fight Benjamin. Benjamin deserves to be punished. How are we losing these battles? Maybe because you're a bunch of scumbags. That's why. The question they need to be asking is, why is it that they have been allowed a single additional breath in their lungs? How has God not wiped them out in his fury? And they're not even done yet, honestly. Because their annihilation of Jabesh Gilead only yielded 400 virgins. They, they need 600. That leaves them 200 short. So their problem isn't even totally solved yet. So they offer peace to the Benjaminites in the mountains who then come down. They meet them at Shiloh. The, the Israelites turn over these 400 virgins to them. I'm sure it was a glorious day of joy at all these marriages about to happen. Right? Probably not. And again, verse 14, 15 tells us they were sorry for Benjamin because of the breach in Israel. Again, they see, you see sorrow directed at Benjamin, which is just like what just happened to them. It, it's not registering at the sorrow of the horror of what just happened. So the elders of the people, the elders, the leaders, gather once again to put their heads together, to come up with a solution. Once again, they're going to fix it for these last 200 men without wives so that Benjamin will not be blotted out from Israel. But they reiterate, even when they're doing that, they reiterate, we can't possibly give them our own daughters, not ours, because this oath that they've sworn that whoever gives a wife to Benjamin is cursed. They're not going to break that oath. They're so determined not to break that oath. And they have not yet exhausted their bank of dumb ideas. They come up with one more. They've got one more in store. They're all gathered together at Shiloh, and they say, hey, there's this annual festival, this annual feast that happens every year here. Let's tell the Benjaminites to go hide in the vineyards. And then when these young women come out to dance at the festival, each one of them can run out and they can grab one of these women for himself, and he can just take it and run away to his own land. And then when their fathers or brothers protest that their daughters have been kidnapped and forced into marriage, then... We'll just ask them to let it slide. That's it. That's their idea. Yes, this situation is just as ridiculous as it sounds. They're, they're manufacturing a loophole to get around that rash oath that they had made. What they're going to do is tell those fathers and brothers, look, hey, just let it be, right? We didn't get enough women for them, and... The Benjamites took them, right? Don't worry about violating your oath. You didn't give them to the Benjaminites. You didn't violate the oath. They were taken from you. So, hey, this works out for everybody, right? So sadly, this is what they do. They carry out this plan, and they have the Benjamites kidnap 200 more women, and then they go back to their cities, and they rebuild them, and life goes on. The chapter ends in verse 25 with that familiar refrain that we've heard over and over in these last chapters. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Is the author signaling to us, this is not approved of God, this wasn't directed by God, this is the men of Israel doing what they wanted, what they thought was right. And what's the problem with that, right? They solved their problems, didn't they? Didn't they just fix everything? The Benjaminites got the wives that they needed so they could continue. The tribes kept their vow not to give their own daughters. Jebesh Gilead was punished. The tribe of Benjamin was taught a lesson. And then the union of the 12 tribes was preserved. Nice and tidy. The little bow on top. And all they had to do to fix everything was amass an enormous pile of tens of thousands of dead men, women, and children in destroyed, burned out cities, and then kidnap 600 women and force them into marriages with scoundrels. That's it. That's all. That's the price. What do they need the law of God for? Seems like they've got things under control. Well, unfortunately, man's relativism just leads to death and destruction. It always has, and it always will. And when relativism rules the day, it is inevitable that the weakest and the neediest will be the ones who suffer at the hands of evil men. Hence the butchery of the concubine and the abduction and the rape of these women. This is the reality of a fallen world. The strong take advantage of the weak. The men fail to do their jobs to protect the innocent, to protect the weak, to protect the women and the children. Of course, God's people are supposed to be different. Israel's supposed to be this bright, shining city of of, uh, people that follow God's law, that worship God truly and adhere to his law. We're supposed to be different. We never have justification for relativism because God has revealed himself and given us a good law based on his character. Right and wrong are determined by what is right in his eyes, not ours. But when the people abandon truth, this is what we see. Moral chaos. It brings down empires and it destroys communities. It ruins families. It enslaves and subverts and it exploits the least of these among us. And we might wonder... How did things get so bad in Israel? Well, we actually know exactly why. We know how this happened by intermarrying with the Canaanite unbelievers, worshiping their gods, abducting, adopting, thank you, adopting their customs, their ideas, their worship, their thinking. Israel's true enemy was their own sin. We see them face plenty of external enemies throughout the entire book of Judges. External enemy after external enemy. But the only reason those external enemies arose was because of their internal enemy, sin, which they did not fight. We read in the early chapters of Judges that Benjamin was tasked with clearing out the city of Jebus, clearing out the Jebusites, which obviously they did not do. That is why Jerusalem was still called Jebus. That's why it was still full of Jebusites. They didn't do the thing that they were tasked to do. Therefore, they lived among them up until that time. They're living amongst the world, the Canaanites, the pagans. Oddly, the Israelites stubbornly refuse to break that oath that they made 
about never giving their daughters in marriage to a Benjaminite. That's something they self-imposed on themselves, and they are dedicated to fulfilling that oath. Yet, they flagrantly break God's law to not intermarry with the Canaanites. They're full of hypocrisy. They're so determined to keep a law that they themselves made up and yet ignore God's law. It's, I mean, this is the epitome of what Phariseeism is. Eventually, at the time of Jesus, Pharisees made a whole bunch of laws, create their own traditions, and they're so determined to keep those, and yet they flaunt and ignore God's law. It starts here. This is indicative of Israel. They're full of hypocrisy. And at the same time, they act like they have the moral high ground when going to war against Benjamin, as if they're the righteous ones. Israel is nothing more than a bunch of hypocritical, self-righteous, syncretistic pseudo-pagans. That's what they are. That's who they are here. And when the people are this way, God gives them rulers that they deserve. Which is why we see even the elders of the people not only approving of, but actually coming up with these heinous plans in this text. These are supposed to be the wise men that kind of resist the, the, the fervor and the passions of the young. The elders of the people are the ones coming up with these ideas. And there's no one there willing to interpose against these wicked rulers. We've learned about interposition in our recent political theology lessons. And this would have been an ideal time for someone to stand up, to interpose, to put themselves between the potential victim and the higher magistrate, to interpose and resist the sentiment of the rest of Israel and then fight for what is right. This is where it should have happened. But it didn't happen. And therefore, the nation of Israel decays generation after generation. The sins that they commit breed more and more sin. The sins that they tolerate breed more and more sin. And worst of all, it is others that end up bearing the brunt of the consequences. This same cycle will happen in our own lives if we persist in doing what we think is right in contrast to God's revealed will. We see it over and over. God has clearly spoken and we come up for justifications to do something else, something that's right in our own eyes. Entire churches do this. And we can do it ourselves personally. We will fall into sin. We'll be frustrated with God for letting it happen. How could you let this happen to me, Lord? We'll seek to avoid the problem. We'll seek justification for it. We'll try to solve it with only minimal, half-hearted confession and repentance. Try to preserve our dignity. And then we'll drag others into the muck in the mire that we've created. Where sin is not crucified, it breeds, it replicates, and it gets passed down from leaders to the people. It gets passed down from parents to children, from generation to generation, which is exactly what happened in Israel. Like several other chapters in Judges, there are no real redeeming qualities exhibited. There's no real characters here to admire. And that is sort of the point of the text. The author is setting the stage historically for the establishment of the monarchy, which came right after this period of Judges. The establishment of Saul, then David, and the Davidic covenant. It's setting the stage historically 
for the monarchy. But theologically, the stage is continually being set for a messiah. They need a prophet, a priest, and a king. The text in Judges focuses on one of those realities. It repeatedly points out the absence of a king, which prompts the question from us, how would a king have helped avoid this situation? Well, they need a point of unity, of course. They need a leader who points them back to true worship and to the one true God. And if they're worshiping rightly, if Israel had been worshiping rightly, then they wouldn't come up with these vile type ideas that will solve their problems. Nor would they be so self-righteous and seek to so mercilessly execute their own version of justice. Nor would they be willing to inflict such evil on young, innocent women the way, the way that they did. Their detachment from God leads to actions that are contrary to his character. Detachment from God leads to actions that are contrary to his character. When we are slack in our devotion to Jesus Christ, we open ourselves up to action that is contrary to his character. We too can slip into self-righteousness and hypocrisy and gross sin. There's a reason that simple disciplines like Bible reading and prayer are neglected prior to falling into sin. There's a reason that that pattern is common. Neglecting these simple disciplines and then falling into sin. There's a reason that Lord's Day worship is disregarded in the life of someone that is struggling. If you look at somebody that's struggling heavily with sin, you look at their Lord's Day devotion, it's almost always negligent. Distance from God always precedes rebellion against God. Forsaking the means of grace by which we draw near to Jesus is the common precursor to sin. A proper king in Israel would call the people to right worship done regularly, to present themselves for worship and to receive and practice the means of grace. The same way Jesus calls us to daily discipline and to not forsake the gathering together of the saints on the Lord's day. A proper king would likewise rule by law. He would enforce the law, which, though it cannot save, it cannot change men's hearts, it does act as a restraint against the corruption of men. Thus, with a godly king in place, had there been a godly king in place, the irrational behavior would not be tolerated, which is what we see in these last five chapters, completely irrational sin. And where it does still show up, it'll be punished fairly, fairly. We wouldn't see these repeated stories of horrific abuse and depravity, nor would we hear of violent overreactions in response to such sin. That same law, upheld by a good king, would then act as a mirror to the people to reveal their sin and point them to the coming Messiah as the only savior for sinners. Had there been a king in Israel, had the law been upheld, the people would constantly see that law and see their own sin in it 
and be reminded he said he would send a seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. It would point them to the Messiah. The law could be used lawfully. And that would humble them. And that would drive them back to proper worship. They would be turned to gratitude for they themselves not being destroyed. They themselves would then be more prone to offer mercy once they realize that they themselves have been given such mercy. Those that know the mercy they've received are the ones that are more prone to give mercy to others. And how does that stay ever before your mind? A law that condemns you and knowledge that God still gives you mercy. Which is what we find out and talk about in worship right now. Then Israel would be less prone to self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Before executing judgment on a fellow tribe or a fellow city, they would perhaps examine themselves first to see their own sin. To take the log out of their own eye before they go to take the speck out of their own eye, their brother's eye. A good king would do these things. And Israel desperately needs a good king. They need Jesus. They need him to wield the sword of the law so that they will be ready to hear the gospel he came to accomplish. And all these same hypotheticals in Israel are actually realities for us. We speak of the subjective sense here, right? If they had a good king, then this or this, this or that would happen. The subjective sense. If this, then that. But those things are true of us because Jesus is indeed our king. He has come and he mercifully restrains our sin with the law. He's, a, he's explained the law in such great detail that we know how easily it can be broken. Even within our own hearts, we can break it merely internally in our thoughts and our lusts and our desires. We can break that law. We can't just say, well, I haven't done this with my hands. I've merely desired it in my soul. No, that breaks the law. He's he's explained the law. He's shown us our great need. He's He's put that law in front of us and used it as a mirror so that we could see how ugly our sin is. But instead of kicking us while we are down, instead of executing total warfare upon us and striking us with the edge of his sword, As we deserve, he offers us a rescue plan from the Father. A plan conceived in eternity past to correct the calamity that we brought into this world with our sin. He will keep the law that reveals to us our condemnation. That law that we see, that we know we can't keep, he will keep it. That's the plan. He'll provide the righteousness. He'll provide the the merit for the life that it offers. He will bear its curse that it brings on condemnation. He will conquer sin and death. That's the plan. Jesus will do it. All we do is receive the free gift of salvation through faith. We trust him to fix that problem that we have caused. We don't put our heads together and try to come up with a solution on our own. We trust him to do it. He said he would do it. We believe him and we'll rely on him wholly. 
And if you're thinking, well, I'm pretty bad, though. I've done some awful things. I've said some awful things. I've done some awful If you could see what's going on in my heart, it's downright evil. If that's what you're thinking. Then ask yourself this question. How is there even an Israel after this? After reading the past 21 chapters, especially these past five chapters, how is Israel not wiped off the pages of history as a people? And there's only one answer to that question. God's astonishing, incredible, bountiful, persistent grace. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. As we've read these final five chapters, I've admittedly struggled a bit to not hate the Israelites. What they do is so disgusting. And I say that, and I am not a holy man. God is infinitely more holy than I am which means he is infinitely more disgusted than I ever could even think to be at this sin. And he would be infinitely more justified in hating Israel. And yet, and yet, he loves them. He grants them grace. He uses them to bring a good king into the world that will not only save Israelites, but save those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's how good his grace is. That's how persistent it is. He, so, he saved those from people groups who practice wickedness on par with everything that we saw in the book of Judges and then some. We cannot out-sin God's grace because God's grace is infinitely long, infinitely wide, and infinitely deep. And we will spend eternity plumbing its depths and marveling at his greatness. We will always be in wonder of his ability to love a people as unlovable as we were. God's grace is greater and we can receive it all because of the work of our good King, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, it is sometimes hard to know how to feel about a book like Judges. It's hard to know how to feel when we read chapters like we have read today. We admittedly don't enjoy hearing about the events that took place in Israel's history because they are so dark. But we don't want to disparage your word by neglecting such passages or thinking that they were not given to us for our benefit. And so we read these stories, and we are rightly horrified. Where we see unimaginable sin, we pray that we are grateful to you for what we have been restrained from. Sins that we have been restrained from committing ourselves, for we surely would have fallen to the same depth of sin were it not for your grace. Where we see persistent evil, we pray 
that we are warned of the dangers of not mortifying sin in the flesh. And where we see your mercy, we pray that we are turned to worship and that we remember that all the mercy shown to your people streams forth from your loving kindness and falls on us as a result of the work of Jesus Christ. May his name be glorified in our midst by the redemption of heinous sinners such as us. Continue, continue your work of conforming us to your son. Break the sin cycles in our lives and protect our children and our loved ones from our disobedience to you. Keep us near you, Lord. Keep us so near to you that we emulate your character. May your grace now, like a fetter, bind our wandering hearts to you. We ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our good King. Amen.